Good morning. Great to be with you all today. Um, I, I'm, I'm tempted to think maybe I should take my shoes off, um, but I'll, I'll, I'll stick them with them on in case of the... Um, <clears throat> yeah, that thing. Um, so, <laughs> my name is Brad Brad, and it's a pleasure to be opening Exodus to you. It's an exciting book, isn't it? Um, so we do kick off our series on Exodus today. And Exodus, I'm sure most of you know, is the second book of the Bible. And its name comes from the, the road or the way out. Exodus tells a powerful story of God delivering the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. And so in Exodus, we have significant, defining moments when God reveals his name, when he reveals more of his identity to his people, and he establishes the identity of his people. In 2011, I travelled to Egypt And I've got a few photos to show you to sort of help set the Exodus scene. Um, This is um, proof. Uh, In one of our adventures, we went to Mount Sinai, and this was the rest stop. Uh, So people could get off the bus and stretch their legs and have a little snack. Uh, But we're very aware on the way from Cairo all the way to Mount Sinai that... um, the people of Israel actually did this journey on foot. They had a little bit of a shortcut through the Red Sea, but, um, <laughs> but it was, um, yeah, a long journey for them. Now, when we got to Mount Sinai, we found the monastery of St. Catherine. And obviously, sorry, I'm a bit in the way. Obviously, the monastery wasn't there when Moses and the Israelites went through, uh, nor was it even there when Jesus, Mary and Joseph Uh, fled to Egypt when Jesus was around two years old. It was built sometime around the 6th century or a little bit earlier and has been operating as a place of prayer, of worship and hospitality ever since. Now we stayed the night at the monastery there and we climbed Mount Sinai starting at 2am and we reached the peak just before sunrise and we didn't see any burning bushes, any manifestations of God or the angel of the Lord, but It was a very special time of worship. Uh, We sang, how great thou art. We prayed. We had a a wonderful time there. We met with God where he had met with Moses all those years ago. Now, back at St. Catherine's Monastery, this is on the way down, uh, we toured the site. And there's a little bit of greenery around the monastery. But most of the landscape is pretty bare. Within the walls of the monastery, there's one bush that stands out and its roots go down under one of the churches in there. And it's this bush that they remember as the burning bush. It's not burning now, but just in case, they've got a fire extinguisher there. (laughs) I think the fire extinguisher raises some questions. If Moses had a fire extinguisher on hand... Would he want to use it? Would it be possible to use it in the presence of God like that? And who would want to sort of quench the work of God's spirit? Well, possibly Moses, actually. He was very reluctant, wasn't he? You can picture Moses. He's shepherding the flock of his father-in-law's sheep through this dry desert place with very little greenery. And suddenly the messenger of God, the angel of the Lord, 
the sent one of God, appears to him in the flames of fire in this bush. Moses thought it was a strange sight, and the bush was on fire but not consumed. And then calling from within this bush, he hears Moses, Moses. It's not really a moment that I think you would pull out a fire extinguisher. It's a moment, I think, when you sort of pinch yourself and go, is this real? Is this really happening? Uh, You've got some curiosity and probably some fear. And you answer with a trembling voice, "Uh, here, here I am. And then God said to him, don't come any closer. Take off your sandals for you're standing on holy ground. God called it holy ground, but unlike many of the so-called gods, the the gods um, of Egypt and and other places, the God who actually made everything there is isn't limited to one area or one function. The true God isn't just the God of war or the God of thunder or the God of fertility. He's not the God of a particular city or place. And so any place that we meet with God is holy ground. He is the holy God and where he is becomes holy. It is set apart. It's a little bit like your kitchen is set apart for a purpose. And so you don't put your shoes on the kitchen bench. Meeting with God is a holy experience. And you know that God is special. God is pure. God is perfect. He's somehow other than ourselves And so it's a holy experience. A few years before I visited the burning bush, uh, they used to let people come right up to it and take photos, but uh, everyone used to break off a little bit of that bush and take it home, and the bush was kind of suffering for it. And so they put up this fence to keep uh, pilgrims and tourists back. Well, I think it's very interesting that Moses and the early Israelites didn't sort of claim that place near the burning bush as a holy place forever. It wasn't like a shrine or a, or a temple, a place of pilgrimage and holy reverence. The Israelites didn't sort of think, oh, that is where God lives. He lives at the burning bush or at Mount Sinai or any particular place until the, uh, the what do you call it, the tabernacle and, and the temple later on with the Holy of Holies. See, the true God is actually the God of everywhere and every when. There's nowhere that's beyond his presence and no time or place that we can go and hide from him. Any place we meet with God is holy ground. And I think it's significant also that God goes further to identify himself to Moses And he says, Moses, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. See, God's identifying himself to Moses. He's saying, you know that promise, that covenant I made with your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Well, I'm that same God, the same God who has great plans for you. And I will keep those plans. And at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Moses met with God, and it was a powerful, significant moment. See, when we face up to the reality of the holiness and the greatness of God, we will find ourselves face down in awe, 
in worship and wonder. We may even find ourselves taking our shoes off or or lying prostrate on the floor. It is a, a powerful, fearful, emotive, serious thing to meet with God. When Moses faced up to the glory of God, he was afraid to look at him. And when we face up to the glory of God, we will, by the natural inclinations of our hearts, end up face down in awe, in wonder, with a sense of some unworthiness, of fear, of reverence and respect. But then in Jesus, we're welcomed in, aren't we? We're welcomed into the courts of the king. And this isn't just some little sideshow. It's the main event of history. It's the show. It's what our hearts, our minds, our bodies and souls, our whole being is waiting for. It's what we've been made for. And so we don't enter into it lightly. You can think about various biblical experiences when people experience that that fear, that awe, that reverence of God. And so you think about Isaiah in the temple. You think about John in Revelation, when he comes face to face with Jesus and drops as though dead before his presence. In the garden, you might remember the garden of Gethsemane, when people come to arrest Jesus in John 18, and Jesus says, I am he. And the people fall back from his greatness. These experiences of fear and awe and wonder at God are all through the Bible. Then, to Moses, God reveals more of himself. He shows that he is the God who sees, not just at the burning bush, but anywhere and everywhere throughout the world, even in Egypt. God says he has seen the misery of his people in Egypt. God sees and God hears. God says he's heard their crying out because of their slave drivers. God sees, God hears And God cares. He says, I am concerned about their suffering. But not only does God see and hear and care, but he can do something about it. He says, so I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians. God is not like the blind, deaf and unfeeling idols of the Egyptians. He has great love for his people and he will deliver them. That's always God's way of being. He stoops. He lowers himself. He isn't too proud to step down to rescue. Appearances like this, appearances of God, are often labelled theophanies. And that comes from two Greek words, theos, meaning God, and phaino, meaning appearance or manifestation. And so it's an appearance, a manifestation of God. And there are many of these throughout the Old Testament. But some people would prefer to label this a Christophany, an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. I think it's got a lot going for it. Because first, no one can see God's face and live, Exodus thirty-three twenty. 20. Uh, Jesus said himself, he said, no one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. 
And also we know that the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit have always existed in this union of love. John 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God and the Word was God. The Son of the Father has always existed with the Father, united in the joy of the Spirit. And often these Christophanies in the Old Testament have the appearance of the angel of the Lord. Like here in verse 2. Angel means a messenger or sent one. And so here we have one who is sent from the Lord, who is also the Lord. Here, and in other instances, the angel of the Lord speaks as God. And he accepts worship that only God accepts. And the Bible is absolutely clear that only God is worthy of worship. And so someone appearing as God, speaking as God, accepting worship as God, must be the one who was sent by God, who is God himself and has come to save. Jesus is the person of the Trinity sent into the world. He lowered himself. He humbled himself and became one of us. He's the one who comes down to rescue, to, live, to deliver us from slavery to sin and darkness. So sometimes people think that there's this big disconnect between the Old Testament and the New. But I think these Christophanies, these appearances of Christ in the Old Testament show continuity. Now, when Jesus arrived, of course, he was different. He did surprise us in the best of ways. But he's very much the same eternal second person of the Trinity, through whom God created everything, who appeared in order to communicate with and to deliver his people. And that's, I believe, what we see here. So here is the angel of the Lord, who calls himself God, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. He sees, he hears, he understands, and he has compassion on his people. He descends to rescue. Verse 8, he says, I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of this land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. I know that sounds rather sticky, um, but really that's an image of a land that has great greenery, of plant life, of crops and fruit and flowers, and so that the, the cows and the goats are exceedingly well fed and provide a, a vast quantity of milk. And it's a, a land that has so much richness in the soil, it's fertile, that there's all flowers and, and plant life. And so there's so many bees there grabbing all the nectar and, and, and creating honey that it's so much that you could say is flowing with honey. This is an image of richness, of thriving life with ample food for everyone. Now, when you're in a desert place like the Sinai Desert uh, and you're thinking about, okay, we've come from Egypt, there's the Nile, of course, a big river, and there's some green life around the river, but soon you get away from the banks of the Nile and it gets pretty bare pretty quickly. Well, then imagining when you're there, this place flowing with milk and honey, that's incredibly inspiring. And so God says that he's come down to rescue his people and he's sending Moses to Pharaoh to bring his people out of Egypt. I'm sure you heard multiple times Moses respond 
And he was very reluctant. He was very hesitant, saying, who am I to do this? What if they don't believe me or listen to me? But, but God, but God, pardon me, your servant. I've never been eloquent. I'm slow of speech and tongue. And finally he says, yeah, Lord, you sort of dealt with all my arguments and rebutted my excuses, but please send somebody else. I think it's quite amazing that God chooses to work through everyday, average, normal people like us, uh, normal people like Moses. And God was incredibly patient with him. If I was him, start with someone new. But, you see, Moses seemed to to me to be acting like a coward. And yet he also had the nerve to continue arguing with God. I think Moses comes across as a very average, everyday sort of person, sort of chosen for a purpose. Um, But I reckon with even more self-doubt and and questions than some of us. And even though God is the God who made everything, who holds everything together by his powerful word, God still chooses to work through people like you and I and Moses. Moses. The text says that God has seen, has heard, and is concerned about his people's suffering. And so he's come down to rescue. But he still uses Moses. God's request is for Moses to go and bring his people out of Egypt. But Moses doesn't have to do it alone. He's already assured of God's presence. And when he objects, saying, well, who am I to do this? God assures him again, I am will be with you. We may or may not experience manifestations of God like Moses did in the burning bush. But we have this same assurance that God is with us. When Jesus had died for us and was raised to life again, he sent his followers into the world to make disciples of all nations. And they went with his promise, I am with you always to the end of the age. God still keeps his promises. In our reading, he's sending Moses to keep his promise alive. One of those promises was the land. One of the promises was descendants of Abraham outnumbering the stars in the sky. And even under the oppression and slavery of Egypt, his people were still flourishing and multiplying. And God keeps his promises today. He's present with us as we grow in discipleship. He's present with us as we seek to make disciples of all nations. And who is this God who is present with us? Well, he's the personal God. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He's the God who sees, who hears, who has compassion on us. He's the faithful one who keeps his promises. And he's the sovereign ruler of all the earth. And he directs us and commands us to go. The final thing I want to point out from our reading today is the name of God. Our God is a God who communicates and he wants us to know him. The name Yahweh is based on the Hebrew letters YHWH, if you can call them that. In Hebrew, uh, in ancient Hebrew, the vowels were not normally written. Uh, which is no problem for native speakers. 
Um, But you may have heard God's name referred to as both Jehovah and Yahweh. Uh, Jehovah is God's name based on the Latin equivalents of the Hebrew letters, J-H-V-H. And basically, Jehovah is kind of the English pronunciation and Yahweh is the Hebrew pronunciation for God's name. And I guess since Hebrew... Yeah, uh, the, the Hebrew Yahweh is the original language. Technically, it is a little bit more accurate. But the name Yahweh comes from the Hebrew for the word I am. When Moses asked, who should he say that has sent him? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of, I, of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, every time you read Lord in in lower caps in the Bible, it's Yahweh or Jehovah. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. God gives us his name because he wants us to relate to him, to know him and to love him. But what kind of a name is I am or I am who I am? Well, for a start, it means God defines himself. When we want to know someone, we use a reference to other things and people. That person is like this or that person is like that. That person is kind and generous. We have an idea of what kindness and generosity is and we think, okay, that person must be like that. When God says, I am who I am, it means that whatever God is like, that is what God is like, if that makes sense. If you think about Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today and forever. It says that God is reliable, God is predictable. He is himself. And when you think about it, that's quite a contrast to the people that you know. It's like uh, the person that you meet and and fall in love with who is kind and generous, who is focused on how to serve and please other people. I'm not really talking about Jo here. Um, um, She she is like all these things. Um, But then, then you go and get married to that person and you see that person is kind and generous and lovely and servant hearted, but... Other times, they're not so much like that. Um, See, being a human, we are sometimes the way we'd like to be, and other times we fall short. But God says, I am who I am. God is always who he is. We can trust that who God is, is who God is. Uh, Who God says he is, is who he is. And when we see God interacting... That is God. And so that means the God, that God is the one who sees us, who hears us, who comes down to deliver us, who shares his name so that we can know him. And he calls us, like Moses, to join in his mission. God calls each one of us primarily to adoption, to welcome into his family and to participate in what he is doing in the world. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So we've seen that God defines himself. 
He is holy. He is Abba. He is set apart. He is the God who keeps his promises. He sees, he hears, he understands and is compassionate. And he descends. He comes down in order to lift up. He calls us and invites us to join in his mission in the world. He is who he shows himself to be. And we can rely on him. Now, while my visit to the so-called burning bush wasn't as incredibly significant as meeting the pre-incarnate Christ revealing himself to Moses, we do, each one of us, have the opportunity every single day to meet with that same God. He has come down to rescue us. And we can feel, we can sense, we can hear his call to us to partner with him today and every day. I want to close with a a fantastic poem from Elizabeth Barrett Browning. She said, Earth is crammed with heaven, and every common bush afire with God. But only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit around them like blackberries. So may God give us the eyes to see, the heart to receive, and the will to join in with his mission each and every day. Amen.